Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events and emerge triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable. I am your host, the unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and today we're going on another mission with one of my favorite people, Terry Jones Brady. She happens to be one of the bravest, most courageous persons, male or female, I have ever encountered. Living out a parent's worst nightmare, Terry survived burying both of her daughters, Heather and Holly, both whom were diagnosed with a fatal genetic disorder, cystic fibrosis, a disease which affects a patient's digestive system and lungs. For years, she and her husband, Tim, were a support system for one another. It seemed that each took turns holding one another up. But eventually, her husband also succumbed to depression and took his own life tragically, leaving Terry to carry on alone. Now, while her story is beyond tragic, it is also one of the most profound stories of love, transformation, and beauty. The human spirit is alive and well in Terry Jones Brady. Please welcome her. Hello, Terry. Hello, Frankie. Thank you so much for that introduction. I am so happy to be talking to you. Your your book, A Mosaic Heart, Reshaping the Shards of a Shattered Life, was one of the most profound books that I think I've ever read. Um, you write in this book, one thing's for sure. If you live on this planet long enough, your heart will be broken. The broken heart can be powerful. The broken heart has more room for more love. And I found this out. Restoring the heart requires perseverance and spiritual work. But if I could do it, anyone can. And, you know, I have to say that I've been saying for, for many, many years that we, none of us know our capabilities, what we can overcome until we're really put to the test. And Terry, my friend, you were put to the ultimate test. Yes, I, I believe that I was. Um, I believe that my life was given to me um, and that I had a choice of not accepting it and you know, getting off like my husband did or making or doing the best I could, playing the hand, the hand that I was dealt. And oh, that's what I chose to do. Amazingly so. I want to go back in time. Let's go back in time to when you were unmarried, young, uh, the young girl. What was your household like where you grew up? Oh, my household where I grew up. Well, I was the oldest of three children, um, three daughters. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so much sounds cliche, but it was like okay. your stereotypical mid-20th century dysfunctional family. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I had a lot of responsibility as the oldest sisters. Um, there was some... Um, alcoholism there was some okay. a lot of rage anger um my father was a wounded man and i realized that now but at the time i just knew that he was an angry man and best thing we could all do was stay out of his way mm-hmm. um 
it's taken me a long time to realize that he was a product of his upbringing and for sure yeah uh, you know his uh lack of nurturance as he was growing up but at any rate my sisters and I spent a fair amount of time running and hiding actually <laughs> wow and I'm laughing because but it's not funny um we moved a lot because my father was restless, could never settle down, couldn't figure out where he wanted to be and what he wanted to do. Okay. So I was born in Richmond, Virginia, um, not far from where I live now. But when I was almost five, uh, my father decided that we would move to Honolulu, Hawaii, oh. which we did. Um, and this was, I think, quite a challenge for my mother. This was um, the time frame, and of course I'm – dating myself but that's okay i don't you're mind. absolutely gorgeous ageless woman <laughs> she is <laughs> 70s and, and when we moved to hawaii it was immediately after world war ii had ended oh, Pearl Harbor, um, yeah. yeah i was as i said i was four and a half um and my father was uh, had joined the marines during the war and uh he was stationed in the south pacific where those horrible battles took place i mean right they're all horrible, but I think there were some unusually horrible battles in the islands of the South Pacific. But I guess he um, had R&R or whatever. Anyway, he went to Hawaii, and he really, really liked it there. And so he wrote to my mother or telegrammed her, which is how they communicated in those days. I don't think right. long-distance phone calling was very expensive, and I don't think they did a lot of it, and certainly no Skype. But anyway, he told her to pack me up and come to Hawaii. Well, my mother at that point in time was uh, in her late 20s, and she had spent her whole life not only in one city, Richmond, Virginia, but in one house. Wow. So she had a very protected and sheltered atmosphere with a very stable family, her parents and um, a sister two years younger than she was. And so she cried and my grandparents cried and they told my father that they didn't want this to happen. I was the only grandchild at the time. Mm -hmm. Grandparents said, oh, no, no, you can't take our only grandchild away from, from us. Mother said, oh, I can't go all that distance. I mean, that was 5,000 miles. It was a long way to go right. yeah. in that day at that time in her environment and her milieu. Sure. Yes. So, um, anyway, she finally agreed to go for a year and stay for a year, or if she liked it, two years. And so we crossed the country on a train and then sailed on a ship from San Francisco to Honolulu. And um, our first house in Honolulu was, I mean, the house that we were in, where my mother grew up and where I was born, was a nice, solid, middle-class home in Richmond, a nice neighborhood, tree-lined streets, that kind of um, environment and the house that dad had rented for us in Honolulu was a termite infested little oh, no. and I remember at the age of four when father met us at the uh, at the at the dock and we got off the Matsonia which was the ship we sailed on and he drove us to pull up in front of the house I was sitting in the back seat and I re vividly remember my mother looking out the window and I could hear the discouragement in her voice, and she said, "Oh, honey, is oh, this no. it? Oh no! Well, yeah, so we lived in this little dumpy, horrible house. Were you anywhere near the beach or the ocean? 
Well, when you're on an island that small, you're never that far from right, right. So, you know, couldn't walk to it, we couldn't see it. We could, you know, get there fairly quickly in a vehicle, a bus or a car, but it was uh pretty much in the middle of downtown Honolulu, actually. So so with your mom being a Southern Belle, how did how did she feel being in a diverse, you know, you know, community, let's say. Actually, you know, she was, she accepted it very quickly. I okay. will say that for her. She had come from this, um, you know, Richmond is different now than it was right. years ago. Richmond is a really pretty cool city. Um, but the, in those days, Richmond was what you think of as, as the old South. And right, yeah. And were rigid and, and the social structure was rigid. But she very quickly made friends of um, a variety of ethnicities. And, and so, you know, I think that that was an advantage for me, that I did grow, grow up um, being exposed to. There were many Asian Americans in Honolulu, right. Um, right. not many pure-blooded Hawaiians because there just weren't any and aren't any, um, but many Hawaiian mixed Hawaiian Haoles or Hawaiian whites. Haoles is what they call whites right. in Hawaii. And um, yeah, we had friends from all all ethnicities, so that was a good thing. Um, so, how long did you stay there? We stayed. Well, we stayed in that little house um, for years. Oh, and wow! Then we moved. We were able to. My father was able to rent a, a nicer house for us, and so we moved up into a section of Honolulu called Manoa Valley. And my, I remember when. We found my mother found out where we were going to move. I was in the backyard of our little dump house, and yeah. there was a, I was playing. I was drawing with chalk on this little chunk of concrete that served as the bottom stairway out of the back door, and it was this. It was a piece of concrete that had all kinds of um, hills and valleys, and it was just irregular and bumpy and lumpy, and it was just like somebody had gotten drunk and dumped some concrete out there or something. I mean, it was not smooth. It was not as if it were intended to be there. In fact, my poor mother tripped on it one time and broke her ankle. Oh, um, no. Smooth it. But I thought it was fun. Yeah. Because I would crouch out there in the in the backyard, which was nothing but dirt and this little concrete chunk, and I would draw things on these little hills and valleys and peaks and crevices and and things that were basically unattractive in your yard, but I had sort of fun, had fun decorating them. So I was out there doing that. My mother came out and she said, Terry, we're moving. And she was so excited. By that time I had a sister. Mm-hmm. And so we moved to this second house and uh, stayed there for two years. And then um, my parents actually bought a really lovely home in the upper part of Manoa Valley, which is actually a very sought-after neighborhood now. And we lived there for five years. And then my father had, um, I, I think he was deteriorating, just kind of descending into maybe a form of mental illness. Okay. In which he lost touch with reality, because I don't think he did lose touch with reality. But I think he was, um, he was mentally ill. And I'm not qualified to... Right, and and he was drinking at the time. No, actually, it's my mother who started drinking. Oh, mom was drinking. Okay, they all were. They they were always social drinkers from the time they moved. Right, and and I think that was kind of at the time a lot of people did. You know, it was accepted to come home and have a scotch or you know on the rocks. That was something that people did. It was acceptable. Yeah, exactly. And and they um, 
the, as they moved from one neighborhood to another, they um, began to associate with a crowd of people in which, you know, a cocktail party every weekend was pretty much the norm. Terry, I'm going to, I have to stop you just for a moment because we're going to go to break in, in a few seconds. Okay. Um, but when we come back, um, do we come back to the United States and, and, and when was a third child born? Um, while we were still in Hawaii. So while you're still in Hawaii. Okay. Yes, we're about to go to break. Don't anybody go anywhere. We're here with Terry Jones Brady. She's going to tell us about life because does anybody know about it? She knows about it. Don't go away. That's right. Don't stop listening. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Stop. It's Virgin did you hear about the hound dog that participated in a 13-mile race in Elkmont, Alabama? According to Runner's World, the two-and-a-half-year-old hound dog named Ludivine was just horb-gorbling in her backyard when she heard the runners lining up for the trackless train track half marathon in the distance. Somehow, she found her way to the starting line and began sprinting alongside the other runners. According to Keith Henry, the winner of the race, Ludivine cut in front of him and the other runners several times. They had to be careful not to trip over the pooch. As it turned out, Ludivine crossed the finish line in seventh place with a time of one hour and 33 minutes. According to her owner, that was a pretty impressive showing for a normally Scabberlacher dog. Scabberlacher is another word for lazy. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Harvard Medical School reports that over 800,000 Americans have hip or knee replacement each year. It's better to stick with your own joint rather than having it replaced because the average joint that's replaced only lasts 10 to 15 years. So having the surgery done at age 50 instead of 70 means there's a good chance you'll need a second surgery when you are older and at higher risk for complications. They recommend that you take care when using your joints. And if you do have joint problems, try non-surgical approaches before turning to surgery. Your doctor may choose to use steroids or lubricating fluid injections to help ease the pain. But they say the most important thing you can do to care for your joints is lose weight. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. And welcome back to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I am your host, Frankie Picasso. I'm here with my guest, Terry Jones Brady. She is a Nautilus Book Award winner for her book, A Mosaic Heart, Reshaping the Shards of a Shattered Life. We're talking to Terry about her childhood when she moved to Hawaii with her mom and dad. She um, grew up there for, I, I guess it sounds like you were maybe there for about seven years. Is that Actually, we were there a total of 10 years. 10 years. We and, went, and your two siblings were born there? My two sisters were born in Hawaii. Yeah. And, um, Mom was starting to drink. Uh, yeah. Uh, and fathers having rages. I think that was the hardest thing for me with the temper tantrums and the rages. And... Um, one day we we had a nice life. I was in ninth grade, which 
um, was in the Honolulu school system at that time, we were, it was the last year of intermediate school. And then the next year, which was 10th grade, I would have gone to high school. But it was in February of my ninth grade year, and I was having a successful year. I was an editor of the, our school's um, yearbook. And I had a close group of friends, girlfriends, and Things were going well for me, and Dad suddenly decided that we would move back to the States. Um, this was way back when Hawaii was still a territory, actually. So um, we moved in February. We sold our house, lovely home, where we were all happy. Um, as I remember our home, it was kind of a magical place for a child. To be living in because it was up in Manoa Valley with a view of the mountains and a waterfall just up the street. And in our yard, we had a huge monkey pod tree that shaded the front yard. And in the backyard, we had an avocado tree and a banana tree and a macadamia wow. tree and beautiful. I mean, it was a, it was like a tropical paradise. It was and then had you know so I was happy in school and <clears throat> so then we moved just very suddenly in February. Right. Bye. San Diego. Uh, and we went back to it. Well, we, we sailed on the learning, another Matson ship. They sold the house, my parents, and we sailed to San Francisco and then ended up in San Diego um, in a little two-bedroom apartment attached to uh, a garage, I think. And my father didn't have a job. Well, so things gradually... Right. The money was running thin, but he eventually did find a job, and then they bought a little. Mm. I'm going to have to move you forward a little bit, Terry. So you you earned a Bachelor of Arts from the University of California in Berkeley. Oh, yes, yeah. And you, wanna... you were and you were self described yourself to me as an introvert, but as an introvert, you actually graduated um, and you moved to New York City, and then you studied acting, voice, and dance, which is actually where you fell in love with your theater director, your husband, Tim. That's right. Yes. I describe myself as an introvert, and I think you'll find that there are many people in their performance business who are introverts, because when you're on stage in front of a group of people and you have a script that you've studied and you're um, taking on another character, it's different from just being yourself out there with, say, three or four people that you're talking to. It's really different. but yeah, but I did. I, I left California, I think, because I wanted to get away from my what I describe as my prickly family. I mean, it's right. yes. Yeah. And by that time, Mom was drinking really heavily, and and it was just anyway. It was I just wanted to go to New York. I wanted to get away. So when you met Tim and, and you guys got together, you went to visit um, his family. Was his family also from Carolina, North Carolina? They were. South Carolina? They were from from North Carolina and they were just vastly different in every way from my family Um, and in a way they took me this they were a very rooted family Um, they had lived in this one county in North Carolina for several generations his parents were um, religiously fundamental people okay not drink they did not smoke they did not gamble they did not Swear. I mean, they were just 
the mother, his mother wore no makeup. Um, it, it was oh, okay. very fundamentalist. Very fundamentalist. But you, you had grown up in a Christian I background. I had a Christian background, but I, I was an Episcopalian. Right. And um, there was an old saying that I don't think is true anymore. Wherever there are four Episcopalians, there's a fifth, meaning a fifth of liquor. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that was kind of a joke <laughs> back in those days. Oh, okay. But, Nevertheless, when, when you met his mom, when you met his mom, she told you a story about a child that she had that, that had died. Yes, that's correct. And, and you know, you, were, you hadn't even become a mom yet when you heard that story. No, this was before we were married. Yeah. And tell us that story. Like, what, how did that impact you when you first heard it? Oh, I, I was just, I was in awe of her. First of all, I was stunned. It seemed to me the most horrible thing a woman could go through to Ooh. give birth to a child and then lose that child. In her case, it was an accident. The child was 18 months old and um, the child would have been 22 years older than my husband because she had nine children. Oh, wow. My husband was the youngest and this uh, little boy was her oldest. Oh. So there was that much age difference between them. And back in those days, when her, her oldest son was born, which was probably around 1915. Yeah, I think it was 1915. They did not have electricity in their community, and so their house was lit with kerosene. Oh, okay. And the little boy drank kerosene. He was 18 <gasps> months old. Oh, my gosh. The kids will get into anything. and um, They will, yeah. Uh, yeah, and she, he just swallowed and did she Did she tell you how she got through that? Did she ever talk about that? Um, well, she talked a little about it. Um, she talked to her. She was very young. She was 19. He was 18 months old. She was pregnant with her second child. Mm-hmm. And she said initially all she wanted to do was die for three days. She didn't sleep. Right. She didn't eat. And I think it was her deep-rooted faith and religion and community support, family support, um, husband support, and the fact that she was pregnant. And, um, you know, she realized that life it's difficult, but life goes on. Right. And so she was able to just pull out of it and, and just get back to her life of being uh, the homemaker and the mother. Like, was there any incidents on, on either side of your family of children having genetic disorders? You know, um, it's interesting because cystic fibrosis was identified as a discrete disease in 1937, which was the first, which was the year my husband was born, discrete so, disease. Yeah, I mean a disease separate apart. Some so many of the symptoms mimic other diseases, like right, I see. or chronic diarrhea and these right. sorts of things. Um, I know that my husband's oldest brother um, had a child born about the same time my husband was born, and he died very young in infancy, and they attributed it to pneumonia. Or oh, okay. So we think that perhaps he had the disease. Um, we don't know of any on my side of the family at that okay. time. But since then, my nephew, um, th- there's a test now for carriers of the disease. Right. And right. both parents have to be carriers. Okay. My nephew had a test when he first married and discovered that he is a carrier, the son of one of my sisters. So oh, it's there in the family. And then. there in the family. Yeah, so, and one of Tim's cousins had, uh, Tim's first cousin had two children who died from cystic fibrosis. Oh, wow. So at the time ours came along, we didn't know anything about it. I never heard of it. 
So, uh, so Heather was the firstborn. Yeah. And, yeah. and when did you first, you know, find out that there was something wrong? When she was eight months old. Okay. Um, she'd always had, she was very tiny, mm-hmm. born tiny, born uh, under five pounds, but. Okay. But you look very petite. Aren't you yeah, very petite? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she was about five pounds and, and then she had a voracious appetite for these first eight months. Oh, okay. But she, everything went right through her. Just went, I mean, she had just constant loose stools. Oh, okay. This isn't pleasant to talk about, but. No. I took her but, to. But, you know, if you have a parent who's listening and, you know, yeah. let, let's tell them what it's all about. So nobody did anything. Nobody told anything was wrong because she was so vibrant and so alert and lively and, uh, and smart. Finishing all of her milestones as she should have up to that mm. time. And when he was, she was eight months old, I took her into the pediatrician and he said, I mentioned to her that her, you know, she just had constant loose stools. Mm-hmm. And he sent me uh, to the hospital in Virginia Beach to have a sweat um, chloride test done, which was the definitive test. As far as I know, it still is the definitive mm-hmm. test to determine the presence of cystic fibrosis. Okay. And the test was positive. Wow. And, yeah. and that must have been a devastating blow because I don't know how much did they know about cystic fibrosis. Oh, well, we didn't know anything about it. Um, right. As a matter of fact, to give you an idea... I mean, I think that some pediatricians understood the disease because at that time, it was exclusively a childhood disease. I mean, now, when Heather was diagnosed, kids were living to be 12 years old. Right. And that was how long she lived. Oh, Um, 12. Yeah. Now, they're living into their 30s and 40s and even 50s. So, they really, you know, the... The the lifespan has expanded considerably. Treatment options have improved considerably. Right. Uh, And that's a wonderful thing. But at that time, well, for example, I went back to my um, OBGYN for a checkup or maybe when I was first pregnant with Holly. I remember anyway, the OBGYN physician said to me, what exactly is cystic fibrosis? He didn't know a guy in another specialty because so little was known about it at the time. But, um, like, so we're going to, um, we're coming up to a break in a moment, but I want to talk about how, how your lives changed you and Tim, how did your lives change as parents having a child with cystic fibrosis? Okay. And, you know, um, we, we've got a minute to talk before we're going to go to break, okay. but maybe you can start telling us about how life changed. Like what was the biggest impact for the two of you as a couple? Well, the biggest impact for us as a couple is, was that um, my life became focused on keeping my daughter as healthy as she could be. Right. And I began to read about cystic fibrosis and try to find out everything I could. There was no internet, so I just had to kind of access what community resources were available, which weren't many. Talked to a few other parents who attended the cystic fibrosis clinic in the Children's Hospital in Norfolk. Right. Um, Tim was still actively involved in a theater. He was producing director of a dinner theater. I'm going to have to stop you. I'm so sorry. We're going to go to break. But when we come back, we'll talk about, um, you know, what you and Tim did. And everybody stick around. We'll be right back with Terry Jones. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right these messages. Stop. 
Those words you never heard. Did you hear about the hound dog that participated in a 13-mile race in Elkmont, Alabama? According to Runner's World, the two-and-a-half-year-old hound dog named Ludivine was just horb-gorbling in her backyard when she heard the runners lining up for the trackless train track half-marathon in the distance. Somehow, she found her way to the starting line and began sprinting alongside the other runners. According to Keith Henry, the winner of the race, Ludivine cut in front of him and the other runners several times. They had to be careful not to trip over the pooch. As it turned out, Ludivine crossed the finish line in seventh place with a time of one hour and 33 minutes. According to her owner, that was a pretty impressive showing for a normally scabberlatcher dog. Scabberlatcher is another word for lazy. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on astronetradio.com. If you just tuned in to us, you're listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I'm your host, Frankie Picasso. I'm here with Terry Jones-Brady. Terry lost two children, two daughters, to cystic fibrosis. And we're just hearing about Heather. She was her first daughter. Heather passed away around 12. Um, but life was a little bit different. Your whole focus, Terry, was on keeping your daughter as healthy as possible. And Tim, I'm gathering, you know, maybe felt a little bit of the loss of attention and started spending more time at work. Oh, he did. He did. Um, he, uh, Tim had, we were both in theater and Tim was the producing director of a dinner theater in our local area back when dinner theaters were a very popular entertainment modality. And he began spending more and more time there, um, more and more time away from us, away from home, um, I completely gave up my interest in theater. Well, not my interest, but my involvement in theater. Um, spending as much time as I possibly could with my child, um, taking care of her. The first thing that we did for her medically, or that her pediatrician did for her medically, was to start uh, giving her pancreatic enzymes, which helped her to digest her food. And we saw a big difference then in the way that um, she was gaining weight and, and oh, you know, awesome. she was able to digest her food. Um, but we weren't dealing with the lung issues at all because we weren't aware that that was an imminent problem and nobody told us to. So, But the other part of that, philosophically speaking, you guys treated her as normal. You let her be a normal little girl as much as she could. We made that decision immediately, mm-hmm. almost immediately, that we would not treat her as a little hothouse flower, um, staying in the house, you know, staying away from anything that wasn't 75 degrees and perfect, no wind, that we would let her play outside, that we would uh, let her go to kindergarten when the time came, that we would encourage her in whatever activities interested her. And as she grew older, she developed a lot of interests, actually. She was an artist. 
She was an avid reader. Um, and she liked the ballet. She liked ballet. She liked horses. She liked riding mm-hmm. horses. So we made this conscious decision that we would let her live as fully as possible during the time she had. And I think she did live as fully as possible during mm-hmm. her 12 years. It was at the expense of many hospitalizations. Sure. Uh, sure. Did you, did in the, in the back of your mind, you know, did you ex- really expect, like, were you going, she's not going to die? Like, did you think she was going to die? I, I, I thought that she wouldn't. I didn't right. think she would because I thought that I knew it was a possibility, a probability even. Right. And yet I felt that this would be just too much to ask. Too horrific. Too yeah. horrific that yeah. I could endure it. Right. Um, Did you and Tim talk about it? About, you know, if she died, what you would do or? Well, as she got closer, as she, when she was about 10, she really began to deteriorate. And we began to accept this as a reality. Um, I remember him saying to me one night, um, he said, you know, I really think her days are numbered because she was so frail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I remember being a little stunned and maybe in denial and I didn't answer him, but at some level I was aware that that was true. And I remember her doctor telling me one time, her pediatrician, when she developed a pneumothorax, which is a collapsed lung, and they had to go to surgery and go in and insert a chest tube. And, and he, her physician said, she's not going to be cured. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just 10, and this disease is ravaging her body. It's taking its toll. Um so I began to, somewhere in the recesses of my psyche, accept that this would be the problem. Inevitable. When did when did um, Holly come along? How old was Heather when Holly came along? Holly was four and a half. Okay, and so, and so when did you find out about Holly's diagnosis? We found out about her at birth immediately. Oh, right at birth. For okay. two reasons. Number one, they were looking for it because we had the gene. We carried the gene. Right. right. Um. Which is not a guarantee that each child will have cystic fibrosis. Um, it's a genetic recessive gene, so there is a 25% chance with each pregnancy that the child will have CF. I thought, well, that gives us 75% odds right. that she won't. I said, that's, you know, in our favor. Right. But she was born with a condition called meconium ileus. Mm-hmm. In which the meconium, which is the first fecal matter that the baby Right. passes when they're born was was blocked in her belly and she was born oh. with a very distended belly oh. and this is one of the first signs of cystic fibrosis in the baby right so they knew it we knew at birth i didn't never because they wrapped her up before they gave her to me oh, okay everybody else knew in the in the uh delivery room i guess they right. thought night's sleep but Tim knew I could tell by the expression on his face that something was wrong and there was just kind of an aura and atmosphere in the delivery room and I said everything is not right but it never occurred to me that she had cystic fibrosis oh wow I held her I, I mean not not at that moment not at right time. I held her and looked at her and you know I was a new mom she was so beautiful sure. and yep. the next morning her pediatrician my children's pediatrician came into my hospital room with a nurse accompanying him, 
Uh, and he said, we have a problem. The nurse handed me a Valium and said, you need to take this. So obediently I did. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and then doctor said, she has cystic fibrosis and we have to transfer her immediately to the children's hospital and she may need surgery. Oh, geez. Well, that was a devastating blow too. I mean, that was a really devastating blow. Right. Because I had had during my pregnancy such high hopes that mm-hmm. we would fall within the 75% and not the 25%. Right. Um. And did you breastfeed her? I did. I, right. I, in fact, it was the first thing I asked my doctor when he said, she, we're transferring her over to ICU in the children's hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was crying. And I said, do you mean I can't breastfeed her? And he said, well, um, I'll get you a breast pump and you can pump your breasts. And then we can make sure that she's given your milk. Okay. The next day, or maybe it was later that day, that afternoon, he came in and he said, we've made arrangements for you to be admitted as a patient into the children's hospital. Okay. Which I thought was wonderful. So they got me a room just down the hall from ICU, right. where she was. Um, and they would bring her to me at regular intervals. And I would feed her. And then I, we took her home because the blockage passed which I thought was a miracle, a wonderful miracle. And we took her home after a week or so. And um, everything was going along very nicely. We knew the children both had cystic fibrosis, and they both had to have their pancreatic enzymes to digest their food. Um, And then one day, one night it was, I was feeding her, and she developed, she rejected the, the milk. She wouldn't eat. And she developed this just eerie high-pitched little scream not a normal baby's cry Mm -hmm. she was at this point nine weeks old okay just got worse and worse but weaker and weaker as the night went on and she wouldn't nurse and tim said to me i think we should call the doctor and i was just in denial in la la land and scared to death something and i said no i'm not calling the doctor tonight He'll just put her back in the hospital, and she's not leaving me. But by morning, dawn, early morning, I realized after this night of crying and and holding her that she had to go immediately. So I took her immediately into the doctor's office, and he looked at her, and he said, has her stomach ever been more distended than it is right now? Because through that night, it had become distended again, as it was Mm -hmm. when she was born. And I said, no. And he said, well, she's in shock. We're going to take her to the hospital immediately. Well, the hospital was right practically next door to his office. So he said, call your husband and then go to the to the hospital. So I did that, and Tim met me at the hospital. And I was still so much in denial that I couldn't believe that my baby had anything seriously wrong with her, that I was sitting in this queue of parents and children waiting to be admitted when my husband came into the the foyer there at the admissions office in the hospital. And he said, what are you sitting here for? And I said, well, waiting to be admitted. And he said, well, let's, let's take her upstairs and we'll admit her later. So we got in the elevator and immediately were met by a bevy of residents, interns, nurses, whatnot. And they took her away from me. And I heard one of them say, we've got to act fast. She was spitting up bile. Um, From that point, for several weeks, she was just out of my hands. Um, A pediatric surgeon came to the hospital, and he said she had to have um, immediate surgery on her belly, that she had um, 
peritonitis that she had um uh, her her intestines had ruptured and she had developed peritonitis which is when the contents of the bowel spill out into wow. the abdominal cavity and that she had a 50% chance of surviving the surgery wow yeah so you must have been devastated yeah yeah and and then you have heather at home yeah i had her needed attention too yeah i had both of them so you learned how to do a lot of medical procedures you guys had to you know hit their backs to keep the lungs and all the mucus from yeah. From getting all hard and, and everything, I guess. And um, how, how did your house turn into, uh, you know, like a little medi center? What what changes did you have to make at home? Well, um, the first thing that happened, of course, we learned to do the chest physical therapy, which mm-hmm. um, now I think they have like a little mechanical vest that the kids are are pounded with. But then it was done manually, and you sort of turn the kids upside down on a tilt table and pound on their on their lung lobes in various positions. And um, to loosen the mucus because they cannot, the cilia, which causes us to all, you know, the, our mucus, our lungs right. to stay clear, does not work with cystic fibrosis patients okay. because the... the so the, it's like, looks like little hair-like follicles right, that, exactly. that go back and forth to sweep it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's so much thinner, excuse me, than, 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 than our normal, than ours is that they just could not cough it up. So that... Right would result in, um, you know, clogged lungs and pneumonia and ultimately So death. this is something both you and Tim did every day with both kids, mm-hmm. did did we, all of this work? And we shared that task. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a ta- uh, some, what they call a mist tent that Heather had to sleep in when she was a baby. Fortunately, the belief that sleeping in a mist tent, which was a contraption that covered the whole crib okay. and put propylene glycol into her lungs throughout the night, oh, so I, that would, was not useful anymore so we right. just, with that and then we had oxygen tanks in the home and it was just um you know a different oh, it was a lot of work you became a real full-time nurse I did. and a mom yeah and nurse, and, uh, and wifely skills kind of <laughs> took a back seat i think um we're gonna go to a break in a minute terry did you just oh in 30 seconds we're going to break <laughs> uh but really just an incredible life story uh, you know, you had these adorable little girls, lovely children, and, you know, so difficult to know that their life it was going to be shortened. Um, but you made the most of it. You gave them the best possible life that they could possibly have. Stay tuned. We're coming right back with Terry Jones Brady, her book, A Mosaic Heart, Reshaping the Shards of a Shattered Life. Don't. That's right. Don't stop listening. Chin Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Stop. Are you ready to start rocking that woo-hoo that only you do? Because Lisa Stedman is on a mission. She will dare you, challenge you, enlighten you, provoke, and empower you to bring out that inner woo-hoo. Lisa is an internationally acclaimed best-selling author. She is a breakup expert, a brand consultant, CEO of Woohoo Inc., and the Woohoo Radio Network. She will show you how to take your boo-hoo and turn it into woo-hoo. Get rebellious and get real. Get your dreams off the back burner. Get inspired and motivated to take action. Start rocking that woohoo that only you do in love, life, and business. She is going to be here for you every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Only here on the Woohoo Radio Network. 
This is the TokiNet Radio Network. Radio with a cutting edge. It's words you never heard. Everyone knows you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. But who wants to catch a fly? Flies are squick and repulsive. Flies have two wings, while all other insects have four. And they beat their wings 200 times per second. That's faster than a hummingbird. Flies jump up and backwards when taking off with an average speed of five miles per hour. What's the word for that annoying buzzing sound flies make? Fretinancy. Pestologists tell us that flies' favorite color is red. Flies have kinesophobia. That's the fear of movement. So simply hang a plastic bag filled with water to keep the flies away. My only question would be, would a fly fly without wings be called a what? I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. And we're back. I'm here, your host, Frankie Picasso on Mission Unstoppable Radio with my guest, Terry Jones Brady. Terry, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Melissa, um, sorry, um, <laughs> my apologies, <laughs> Holly. Holly, Holly um, was fortunate enough to live, you know, double the time that Heather had, really. She was, she, wasn't she near 20? She was 22. She, so 22. she had an extra decade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and why is that, do you think? Did they, were they just more knowledgeable I think they were more knowledgeable. I think she got intervention uh, at an earlier age. Um, there was no physician in our area, really, who knew much about cystic fibrosis. I thought there was, and I right. thought we were taking her to somebody who knew about it, and I think he thought he did. Right. But Heather just didn't, didn't get medical intervention that she should have quickly enough, whereas okay. Holly got medical intervention from the beginning. So what was happening with, with you and, and Tim at the time? You were, you were going through different religious experiences. You were looking for some spiritual guidance for a community to support you because he was kind of gone a little bit. Yeah. Um, you felt the distance yeah. with him. And was he drinking and depressed um, a little and bit? And off and on. When it was on. It was a lot. Mm-hmm. But he was functional. I mean, he had a really great job, and he did a great deal for the community. He was involved in a lot of civic. Yeah, he was honored, right, by the community. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah. Um, and he got a, a Citizen of the Year Award or something way back in um, the 80s, 1980s. But, yeah, he did a lot. I mean, he was a very creative, very talented and intelligent man, a very uh, disturbed also, very right. Conflicted. Well, um, he he ended up committing suicide. He yeah. said to you, I think the day before, he goes, "I'm going to kill myself," and you just kind of said, "Yeah, okay." Well, no, and not in a in a bad way. I mean, people say stuff, right? They say right. stuff. I had, and- we had taught. He had, he had actually sought help a couple times in mm-hmm. a psychiatric hospital, and I had high hopes that this would that would do it. Right. But he it didn't. It didn't last, and he just descended, descended, descended into mental illness and severe depression. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel I'm hollow from my neck to my knees. 
This is after Holly passed away. Yes. Yeah. So I have nothing left. There's nothing of me left. And then I believe it was the next day he said, oh, I'm getting ready to blow my brains out. And I said, well, can I take you to the hospital? And he said, nope, no more hospitals, no more doctors. I'm I'm not. But I I really didn't think that he would actually do it. Right. That's what. Yeah. Nobody does. I don't think. So drastic. Right. And then and, the next morning, I heard the gunshot. Wow. It oh, my gosh. Very it must have, Oh, I'm sure it was the hardest thing. And and so there you are, left alone. Yeah. And you're, um, you know, you're left alone. And somebody somewhere had said that, look at Terry. She's not crying. She's not, you know, she isn't she, what is she made of stone? She's not emotional. And I think it's so important to talk about how people... You know, grieve the different ways that people grieve and, and what it will look like. Cause there's not one way to do it. Absolutely not one way to do it. And I think that this was out by that time, by the time Tim died, I had, uh, gotten a master's degree in special education and I was working as, um, instructional support specialist or now they call it an education specialist mm-hmm. so that I was assisting teachers to develop curriculum for children with emotional needs and learning, uh, learning, learning disabilities mm-hmm. kind of thing. I really loved my work. I think people were so shocked that I could go to work and function out in, uh, you know, in the professional world with my career, with what well, stuff that I had at home. And yes, one colleague asked another who related to me, which I thought was kind of stung. She said, pretty cruel. is Terry made of stone? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not. I was not made of stone. Another one said, we don't, I don't know how you're putting one foot in front of the other. I just compartmentalized my life. Right. I had, otherwise you would have fallen apart. Yeah, and it doesn't do you any good to fall apart. I don't know why people need to see you fall apart. But right. here's the important thing, because I know that we talked about this at the beginning of the show that was so important for you was, and for me too, because after reading your book, you think you have, you know, tragically had the most horrific things happen to you, um, you know, as a mother, as a wife, as a woman, and you did carry on and you did find happiness. And for all the people who think there's no point, you know, life will never be okay. It magically was okay. Well, you do put was, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And you do carry on. I, I do carry on. Now, let me tell you this. The people who saw me. We've only in, got a few minutes, Terry. Okay. Two, like, two I minutes. cried a lot. I cried a lot. I'm and sure. I public. I had a wonderful, wonderful analyst, a Jungian analyst, whom I started seeing very shortly after Heather died. So that was 1982. And to this day, I still see her now, just occasionally from time to time. She's more of a friend now, more a sort of a spiritual advisor, right. um, a dear friend. But she got me through the really rough times when I was seeing her at least once a week. I did lots and lots of crying in lots and lots of situations right. with groups in my personal therapy at home by mm-hmm. myself. But I was able to carry on as a professional educator. In public, right. <laughs> right, so, yes. Um, it is very important for people to understand that there are many different ways of grieving. I mean, some people burst into hysterical laughter when somebody dies because yes. they can't. This is ludicrous. This is ridiculous. Can't, this can't be happening. But it's one of the things, one of the coping mechanisms. That did, did, did you feel... Um, Guilty for surviving at all? Ever? 
Did you feel like you shouldn't be allowed to have fun or restart your life or do anything? Did that ever come to you? I think there was some guilt, but more than guilt about carrying on, there was, I I would look back and I still do somewhat um, and say, how could I handle this situation differently? Or what more could I have done for my girls? And when that happens, I know how to access resources. I know who to call for help and for support. I have a great support group. And then they, my thinking gets back on track. Yeah, right. we all make mistakes, but. I mean, you didn't, you didn't give your children cystic fibrosis. You would have taken it away had you been able to. So, you know, you can't feel guilty about giving them the best childhood, the best mothering life that you could have given them. Right. I did the uh, best in all circumstances that I could so. at the time. Yes. In yes. retrospect, are there certain things I would have done differently? Yes. But I think that's probably true of every human on the, on the planet. Right. When right. you look back. Right. But, you know, for people, I mean, it, it, it has to be one of the most difficult things to lose a child and to know that you're losing them and have them and know that, you know, I mean, we all, we all come to life, you know, with an expiration date, but yeah. not too many of us know what that date is. Um, right. But, you know, it, it had to be so difficult for you. And I'm so thrilled that you were able to find love and joy and happiness in the r- remainder of your of your life. So tell us about that. How did that happen? You weren't going out. You were staying in. You didn't want to get dressed, put makeup on or do anything. How did you meet your hu- – you're now remarried. How did you meet your husband? Well, my weekends were just as you described. I was still going to work, but then I would come home and I was in – I, I was a recluse. I was an isol- just isolated. I said my most exciting thing was to go to the grocery store and pick up a few things to have to eat around the house. And the crossword. <laughs> and the crossword puzzles. Yes. <laughs> I light up my life. And um, I was invited to uh, what we call down here a crab picking mm-hmm. in this part of the country where you, the, the whole bunch of crabs are steamed and they put them all out on the table and it's just very get involved and everybody eats crabs and has a Coke or a beer to go along with. It's great fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, kind of a Southeastern thing. I don't know if they do it in other parts of the country. It's uh, Baltimore and South. It's an East Coast thing. Yep. Um, so, um, I had accepted this invitation, and then when the day came to go, I did not want to go because I was still in my pajamas an hour before the event was to start. And I said, oh, everybody will just be looking at me and pointing fingers and saying, whispering, you know what happened to her? Because it's like you're living on another planet when you've been through these events that I've been through. People don't just look at you and think, well, there but for the grace of God go I and it's just like you're different. You're, you're or they ha- they feel they can ask you personal things when you haven't given them permission. So I finally, I was a little voice in my head, and this is one of the things that I want to convey to everybody is to to spend some time in meditation and listening to your inner guidance because we all have it. We all have an inner guidance. A little voice in my head said, said get up off this sofa and get your butt out the door and go. And so I did. I went to the crab feast, which was actually held at the parish hall of the church that I wasn't a member of, but not attending very much at that time, because mm-hmm. I just didn't want to leave the house to go anywhere. Right. And um, I sat down next to this, I was seated next to this man, not a setup because nobody really knew that either of us were coming yeah. each other and brought him. Um, and he was very good looking and very interesting and we started talking and we've never stopped talking 
How wonderful for you. I just want to make mention that if you want to, um, please go to Terry's website, www.terryjones-brady.com. And Terry is now married to Mr. Brady. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, and they have a family of bulldogs and they're very yes. cute. Yeah. What are your dog's names? Um, well, the one we have now is Millie. Mm-hmm. And the one we're going to get is Max. We, okay. Um, Millie, Millie is our third rescue. And we had two rescues that we had for several years. And then we had to, they, you know, went the way of all dogs. And then we were left with Millie, who was a rescue um, from an animal shelter. And this one, Max, we, we've got from a breeder. So we decided to go with a brand new puppy this time. Right. And those are our children and our family. And we love them. And, I, you know, I'd like to mention if anybody would like to read my book, um, if they would access just email me it's on amazon but i have to kind of uh, uh, tweak some some stuff i've got with amazon I've, I've been on there for four years and some of their um, routines and methods have changed so i need to tweak my amazon account but they can email me and i can send them a book which okay uh, perfect i have here. we're in our last minute terry um first let me thank you so much for being my guest today oh, on mission welcome. unstoppable radio her book, again, is called A Mosaic Heart, Reshaping the Shards of a Shattered Life. And you said, you know, you started to do, and the reason the mosaic was because you started to do some mosaic art. And I can't go into it because we only got a minute left and I did want to talk about it. But, that, you know, whenever you do anything with your hands, and it, it's very helpful. And they're beautiful pieces that I think you sell. But, Terry, we're gone. We're out of here in just a moment. Thank you again so very much. I'm so happy that life has treated you with great blessings at the end of your life because that's, you know, so important. And you found the joy and love that you deserve. Thank you, Frankie. It's just been a pleasure to speak to you. And I I do feel that I'm, I've had many blessings in my life despite the tragedies. Yeah. And, And you're walking, you know, perfect for everybody thank you so much just thank you thank you thank you they didn't stop stories of people who the odds were against them turned defeat into victory you've been listening to mission unstoppable with coach frankie picasso see you next time and always remember don't 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 stop